Good morning. So we are going to be in Philippians 3 again this week, Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. And uh, the title for this morning's sermon is Fostering Godly Discontentment. Um, might be a strange uh, phrase for you to consider, and maybe I am. I, I mentioned to the prayer group this morning, maybe I'm being a little cheeky with the way I describe that. But our primary point last week emphasized the riches of knowing Christ. So in Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Paul recited what he had gained in Christ, this kind of uh, transaction that had taken place. Uh, In verses 4 through 7 before that, his losses, what he had sacrificed, verses 8 through 11, what was gained, and what did he gain in Christ? He gained the knowledge of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, altering his position before God. We talked about that last week. Uh, this kind of example, this template for us to follow, and the fellowship of Christ and what that affords us. With this in his sights, this fellowship gained, what does Paul decide to move on with? With this intimacy with God, what is his very next step in the progression of his thought? Dissatisfaction. Really, Paul? I mean, is, is that really the, the next step in this, in this progression? Uh, what about his other statement, godliness with contentment is great gain. How, how do we coordinate these two ideas and, and bring them together in Paul's thought? Are they conflicting? Are they contradictory? Do I not know what I'm talking about? It's quite possible, but we'll see what the text says this morning, and we'll learn that this assertion, this is what we're going to focus on this morning. Godly discontentment, a particular kind of discontentment, points to the satisfaction found in Christ alone. Godly discontentment points to the satisfaction found in Christ alone. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, follow along as I read it for us. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So according to Philippians 3, 8 through 11, Paul had suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ, to be found in him, to know him in both his suffering and the power of his resurrection. Did this mean then that Paul is stating uh, that he had reached spiritual perfection or that we should strive and expect our lives to reach the same level of spiritual perfection? Simple answer, no. Paul points to the state of being that, are, that points our hearts to satisfaction in Christ alone. That is, our first point this morning, godly discontentment promotes humility and perseverance. Godly discontentment promotes humility and perseverance. We see this in verses 12 through 14. Because Paul speaks so confidently of the worth of knowing Christ, he immediately hedges his statements um, regarding this divine exchange worked in Christ. And as we grow in appreciating the incompleteness of our own hearts, our own spiritual status, in comparison to the glories of Christ, we might easily get overwhelmed or simply become discontent with our state. 
so there is a dissatisfaction that springs from sinfulness, that is a kind of self-loathing or uh, springs from personal pride uh, or even selfishness. In fact, this is the exact opposite in many ways of what Paul is describing. Rather, there is a God-given kind of dissatisfaction with where we find ourselves that we desire more and more and more of Christ, a proper perspective on Christ and ourselves that gives us a greater love and passion for Christ alone. In a word, we are humbled. And not only this, but we develop a hunger for more of Christ we have a way to persevere, and that is by the Spirit's power to a deeper and deeper connection to Christ. And Paul explains this process of promoting humility and, depend, and perseverance in two ways. First, he says, godly discontentment calls us back to the gospel. Godly discontentment calls us back to the gospel. We see this in verse 12, when Paul says, not, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that which, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So although most translations supply an object for the first verb here in verse 12, there actually is no object in the original. So literally it would read, not that I have already obtained or have already been made perfect. Uh, the paralleling of these with the conjunction or, it's, it's, it's a balancing of these two phrases and it's intended to focus our attention on this reality. Paul knows he's not perfect and we should know we are not perfect. Uh, the word arrived here, it, it's, we have a turn of phrase that, that we often hear tossed around, so-and-so thinks they have arrived. And that's probably a pretty popular level uh, phrase. And there is a sense where this, this is an, in, an indication that this person thinks they are very highly of themselves. They think they've somehow attained to a spiritual state better than all the rest of us. That Their personal pride is what it's pointing to. Uh, and Paul here is trying to break down this notion that's common to each one of us, that each one of us has a measure of personal pride where we feel like we maybe think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And in reality, there should be a sense where we're humbled and, and we understand what Christ has given us and affords us daily in the gospel. And it should bring us to our knees. And even these words here that Paul uses, they're, uh, they're words that are often used in the mystery land, uh, religions of Paul's day. And it has a sense where this person has arrived at completion. This is, this is a destination. It's not a process. It's a destination. So Paul is hijacking these terms in the Philippians. Uh, for the Philippians, they would understand this notion that these are people who think they're somehow, uh, they have this secret knowledge or secret understanding that no one else can quite get. Uh, and so Paul is saying, no, that's the exact opposite. Knowing Christ is an ongoing process, a relational intimacy that will never be realized in this life, only when we stand before Christ. Uh, and even this language of take hold um, that Paul uses here in verse 12, uh, this is a language that Paul borrows from the worlds of athletics and warfare. In fact, uh, there's a battle report, uh, and I'm going to reveal my PhD studies here. There's a battle report, the, the historian Herodotus uses this word to describe an army's pursuit of a retreating enemy. And in so many ways, that likely reflected the way Paul felt of Christ's pursuit of him. Remember his, uh, his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. It was a pretty violent experience. It wasn't nice and gentle. He was riding and a bright light blinds him. And in many ways, that Paul, that's how Paul views uh, Christ taking hold of him, Christ uh, completely interrupting his life and violently taking hold of a sinner who was rebellious 
and who was persecuting the church and was completely resistant to the claims of Christ, and Christ took hold of him. And the Greek phrase uh, behind the words that for which usually expresses cause. So in many ways, a better reading of this text would be because Christ took hold of me, that is why I seek to take hold of these things. So Paul is pointing out that the gospel reorients our perspective and the gospel gives us a hunger for more. This discontentment we might feel should call us back to the satisfaction we find in Christ alone. So it begs the question, how much do you need Christ? Do you think you have arrived? If you don't know, uh, a good check might be to ask a spouse or a good friend who will tell you the truth. Uh, if you have this perspective, if you think you have arrived, someone who's going to be honest with you, and chances are each one of us at some level is blind to our own personal pride. And Paul is encouraging us here, indeed God's word is encouraging us here, to foster a kind of perspective on ourselves that makes us realize we haven't arrived. We haven't attained our goal yet. There is more we can do and more ways we can grow. And how do we do that? We are called back to the gospel. We are humbled. We're also prompted to think, what stirs our hearts most? If you take a glance at your heart's deepest longings, your desires, your passions, and the objects of those desires and passions, is there a hunger for Christ or a hunger for other things? Allow the ongoing desire that each one of us has. We all want more. We want to grow. We want to improve. Uh, Allow that hunger to be oriented toward Christ alone, towards the gospel. Take time to re-examine your own objects of longing and seek Christ alone. So first we've seen this morning, godly discontentment promotes humility and perseverance. How? First, by pointing out how godly discontentment that come, this, this ongoing process of growth calls us back to the gospel, to faith in Christ alone. But not only this, in verses 13 and 14, Paul points out a second way that godly discontentment uh, promotes humility and perseverance. And that is godly discontentment calls us back to maturity calls us, excuse me, to maturity in Christ. Godly discontentment calls us to maturity in Christ. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul uses athletic imagery, and it's some of the most well-known imagery, and, and, and it's imagery he uses in other uh, writings. And we often consider this section here uh, of forgetting what is behind and moving forward to what is ahead, uh, an indication that we need to forget the mistakes of the past. And indeed, there is There's a measure where that's true, but there is a positive and a negative forgetting that Paul is emphasizing here. So negatively, we must forget our mistakes and failures that the tempter may use us, our flesh uses to isolate us and to draw us back into a life of spiritual death and depravity and and sinfulness. Uh, Positively, we must also, though, forget the successes of our life. Sometimes we rest on our laurels. Uh, We rely on maybe past spiritual successes and we don't move forward into greater, deeper intimacy with Christ. And this idea of forgetting what lies behind, this, this running imagery, as a runner myself, uh, Paul's image here of a race is very helpful. It's vivid for me because anybody who's done any running knows that it is inherently an act of perseverance. Uh, there are a few people, I guess they're out there, that they love the act in and of itself. I think that's unusual in so many ways. 
so what Paul is drawing on here is an image of perseverance. And in, and in Paul's day, the Greek runners, they, they ran in a straight line down to a point and then ran straight back. So Paul is further emphasizing this singular focus on our life where we have one object that motivates us each and every day, that gives us the endurance to, per, to persevere in the midst of life's difficulties, of, of fatigue, of challenges, of discouragement, uh, and that is Christ alone. It calls us godly discontentment when we have perspective on ourselves and on Christ. We are driven. It calls us to maturity in Christ. And in light of Christ, there's always more we can do in this life. I will always have a greater need to sacrifice, to love, and to faithfully persevere. And also consider, and I will remind us again, Paul had many reasons to feel satisfied with his life. Even post-conversion, we've talked about what he gave up for the sake of Christ. Let's consider what he had already accomplished in his life following Christ. Uh, he had endured beatings, betrayals, shipwrecks, danger, uh, stonings. He had had a hand in churches all across Asia Minor. Consider, I mean, could you or I say we've had a hand in church plants across the eastern seaboard? I mean, he was a theologian of and for the church. He was greatly loved by most every congregation where he was engaged. There was some, uh, I'm sure he wasn't loved by everyone, but you get the picture. If there was any guy who had a reason to feel satisfied with his life's accomplishments, surely it was Paul. And in the, in the context and perspective, putting, comparing his life's work in comparison to Christ and the gospel, it, it he realized there was always more he could do. He could always go on to greater and deeper intimacy. And what example does he leave to the rest of us? Just that. He did not rest, but he continued to pursue that singular goal, intimacy with Christ. And Paul mentions a prize here. So uh, it, it can be confusing because, well, I push on to this prize. What is this prize that he's emphasizing? Uh, and there is some debate. Uh, is it the full knowledge of Christ, what we talked about last week? So is he... Has he attained, does he seek this full knowledge that he'll somehow gain or salvation? Is he seeking salvation, resurrection from the dead? Uh, ultimately, Paul is emphasizing a principle of prioritization uh, in that the word prize indicates something rare or highly valued. And Paul means to call out our need, the, the word of God is calling out our need to constantly reexamine what we prioritize. What are you prizing what is set up on a pedestal? What, what, when all else fails, do you pursue? You know, if you're your busiest, your most stressed, what do you still make the time to pursue? That is what you prize. And even the failures of our life, we can sometimes make our sins kind of a, a voyeuristic or kind of, a, we, we become discouraged even. We, we allow them to overwhelm us and, and cloud the fact that Christ has done a marvelous thing for us. And consider what Paul could have dwelt on. He could have dwelt on all the families he'd ruined uh, in his persecution of the church. He could, Stephen, he, he was part Im, implicit in the stoning of Stephen, uh, implicit in murder. Consider that the burdens he likely could have carried, the sins he had committed. But instead he counsels, and the word of God counsels us here to forget what lies behind and continue to pursue what lies ahead. Push on for greater and deeper understanding, knowledge of the prize that, that is Christ. 
So it begs the question, what weighs you down? What weighs me down? And it's positive and negative in the sense of what sins do I allow to, my flesh to continue to remind me of? Granted, there's, there's, godly, there's spiritual conviction of sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is sin that has been forgiven, but we continue to allow it to rule our lives, the shadow of it. Or what positive things, what good things are you allowing in your life to be a distraction? Uh, what successes, spiritual successes have you had that you're allowing to hold you back for the, for the next level of spiritual growth? Um, the author of Hebrews describes it this way in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, and that phrase implies good things, things that just simply weigh you down. It's not, they're not bad things. It's just things that uh, hinder your ability to run well. And the sin that so easily entangles, obviously that's negative, the thing that, that holds us back, the sins that each one of us know, we, we need to continually draw on the Spirit's strength and grace to overcome. And let us run with perseverance, again that racing imagery, run with perseverance the race marked out for us, doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the only object of our race. So I ask again, what weighs you down? Negatively, what weakens you? Godly discontentment holds on to nothing in the past, has a divine perspective on both our successes and our failures. Instead, we are driven back to Christ and the power of the gospel, and we persevere to greater maturity in Christ, to cultivate a greater dependence on the gospel. And then also we're asked, what, what do you prize in your life? And I, 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 when I describe the word prize, what do you value? Maybe that's a better way to describe it. As we studied last week, knowing Christ surpasses the value of all other things. So very simply, make Christ your greatest treasure, your source of identity. Our flesh will always tempt us with lesser joys. We constantly look for happiness, the church fathers often claimed that was the greatest pursuit, was happiness. Uh, and in many ways, that's true. We all, we all seek happiness. Reconsider the object of your happiness. Is it Christ alone, where you gain your contentment, your identity, your satisfaction? Or are there other things you're allowing to sate your hunger, but will never satisfy fully? So Paul calls us to press on in verses 12 and 14. Uh, it's a, an emphasis reiteration of the spiritual dissatisfaction in anything but Christ alone. It's a stress on active commitment, a godly discontentment, and this promotes humility and perseverance because of our need for the gospel. It calls us back to, the need, to our need for the gospel, and it, and it raises in us a desire for spiritual maturity. And in many ways, this, and, in this, and this is our second point this morning, not only does godly discontentment promote humility, and perseverance, but godly discontentment encourages spiritual maturity. We see this in verses 15 and 16. Paul resists any attempts, again, to set himself up on a pedestal, but he doesn't resist this idea that there are models to be imitated. And he, and he says this in other places, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But there is another measure where this word that Paul uses here does not imply, again, a completed state. It's not a finished act. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes this process of maturation as a movement 
from one degree of glory to another. So again, he's emphasizing in 1 Corinthians and in here, this, this constant movement toward a closer and closer reflection of Christ. What he's aiming for is that each one of us should strive for a greater, greater reflection of Christ. Anything less would be a betrayal of our calling and his calling. Hebrews 6.1 states it this way. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. The spiritual maturity takes a specific shape in scripture and Paul gives us a picture of this spiritual maturity here that's encouraged by godly discontentment. He describes it in two ways to channel our need and desire for Christ. First, he says, godly discontentment comes from intimacy with Christ. We see this in verse 15. Godly discontentment comes from intimacy with Christ. Inherently, mature people don't think they're perfect. That's the funny thing about mature people. Uh, They don't think they've arrived. There's a a perspective on their life that uh, comes from knowing and loving Christ alone. The humility proclaimed in Philippians chapter 2, where the God of heaven takes on flesh and humbly comes to redeem mankind, becomes a portrait and an example and a template for each of us to follow. Those who are spiritually mature don't give a backward glance to spiritual attainments. They don't rely on glories, the glory days, or, or even allow the sins of their life to have an, un, an unhealthy hold over them. Uh, instead, maturity here means pouring energies into the full pursuit of Christ. They run the race until it's over. Paul's confident assertion that the, that the Philippians should do this as well serves as an example and a challenge to us as well. God reminds us through Paul of the enduring flaws that each one of us has. So when Paul says mature here, and, and then he points out that if you don't think this way, if any of you think differently, then God too will make it clear to you. He's implying that the mature person understands that it's a, it's a constant process of, of correcting and recorrecting and, and gentle prodding from the Spirit to drive us to intimacy with Christ. And this term for mature, it would seem to be counterintuitive that, or, or I guess against what Paul had just said where he says, I haven't arrived, I have, I'm not perfect. But then he uses this term for mature. Well, when, when Paul applies this word in other portions of scripture, of his other portions of his writings, he's not saying a kind of perfection or arrival or destination. What he's implying is the ability to, to distinguish between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Consider 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 and 7. He says this, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. There's that word. But not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. Also, Colossians 1, 28 and 29 says this. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature, there's that word again, in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So even in Colossians, Paul Paul uses very similar language, right? This striving, this pushing onward, this desire for more. I push myself so that we present everyone to maturity in the last day. This word is also used uh, when Paul admonishes the churches to use spiritual gifts appropriately in 1 Corinthians 14. He says this, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants, 
but in your thinking, be adults. It's adults, that's the same word for mature. So Paul contrasts those who think like infants and those whose thinking is mature, showing a primary concern not with ultimate perfection, but for constant growth, spiritual maturity. In Philippians 3 then, our passage today in verse 15, maturity is a matter of refusing to focus on the spiritual successes of the past and realizing how much effort must be expended on the course that lies ahead. So it begs the question, are you spiritually mature? Because Paul clearly identifies that that there are people who are mature. So are you one of those people? Or maybe you're allowing your youth or your, to be a, an excuse, or maybe your, your age to be a camouflage for spiritual immaturity. Uh, there's often a misconception that the wisest are the oldest. That's generally true, yes, but that's not always the case. There's also this uh, notion that, the, that youth and young people, uh, that's okay for them to waste their life. It's okay for them to sow so, so the wild oats, I think is the term that they use for it, sowing wild oats. No, that's not okay. Paul says, and in fact to Timothy, he challenges him, don't let anyone despise your youth. He's a 30-something pastor and Paul, that Paul is challenging. But be an example in word, in deed, in love, in faith, in humility. And even the older, Paul challenges them to mentor. Pour your lives into the, into the younger and he challenges the older to, to, to pick up young men and young women and pull them along to greater maturity. The question is not necessarily if we are denying ourselves or making excuses for our spiritual immaturity, but how we are. Because each one of us is, at some level, making excuses. And godly discontentment reorients our perspective on our excuses. And it only comes with intimacy with Christ. So there can be no replacement for sincere connection or relational knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Not only does godly discontentment promote spiritual maturity by coming from intimacy with Christ, but it also renews our dependence on the gospel. We see this in verse 16, when Paul says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. In some ways, this last concept um, sums up the entire sermon quite well. And maybe I should have just given you this point. We could have all gone home, right? Uh, Godly discontentment fosters a dependence on the gospel. Paul finishes this section encouraging the Philippians to fight any temptation to sit still, rest on any accomplishments, or even agonize over any past failures. And scripture commands us to live up to what we already know, what we have already grasped, what we know we're supposed to do. Uh, The word for live up to, this phrase, the verb, uh, is only used three other times by Paul, so it's a pretty rare word. But when we examine the three other times, we get a a pretty rich picture of what Paul is emphasizing here. Uh, In Romans, where Paul, Romans chapter 4, Paul uses this word and he references the godly heritage of Abraham. So he's referring to the life of faith when he uses this word in Romans. He also uses it in Galatians 5 in a very familiar passage to most of us uh, where he talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. So this kind of live up to is a life characterized by the Spirit's fruit. And then he also uses it in Galatians 6 
to describe the life that God himself has recreated in each one of us who are redeemed. So how does this verse open up to us to speak of godly discontentment? Well, simply put, each one of us has the power of the Spirit as we recognize the gifts, abilities, and knowledge he has given us actively today in this moment, and we must live up to and, and seek a greater grasp of that information. Deuteronomy 29 actually says this, and I, it's one of my favorite verses. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. So how often do you reflect on the purpose of your life? <laughs> it's a pretty big question, right? Uh, existential question that philosophers and theologians have agonized over for centuries. What, why do we exist? As a Christian, why do you continue to exist? Uh, reflecting on our, our purpose statements here, loving God's glory, loving God's people, loving God's world. Are those just words to you, to me, to us as a church? In many ways, they reveal to us the purpose of our life, the reason we continue to exist. What knowledge or conviction are you neglecting right now? How are you resisting the Spirit's work in your life actively to go on for more intimacy with Christ? Each one of us must take inventory of where we are not living up to the revealed knowledge of Christ given to us. Because frankly, it's true for me, and I don't think I'm alone, <laughs> that there are things I know I should be doing that I am not doing. So frankly, if each one of us committed to live out what we know we're supposed to be doing, uh, there's always more we could do. It's not like it's a mystery. It's not like it's hidden from us. It's not like it's unknown to us. It is not a mystery. We simply do not exercise the willpower to follow through on what God has already given us and revealed to us. Don't be content with just living. Thrive and seek deeper intimacy with Christ. So I've, I've given a kind of unconventional uh, title to the sermon this morning, Godly Discontentment, Fostering Godly Discontentment. But yet the implications of what we're discussing are, are rather deep because Christians should never be satisfied with yesterday's successes or even distracted by yesterday's failures. And the gospel helps us understand that. In fact, Winston Churchill stated it this way, if you spend the present dwelling on the past, you lose the future. We are never static. In fact, we are either growing or we are dying. There's this myth that somehow we can have this funny little place where we're just maintaining. We're just kind of maintaining what's going on. In fact, that's not what's going on. Either we are growing and seeking more or we are losing ground. There's no in-between uh, middle place where we're just still. That's, that doesn't happen. We are all running a race. Either we're not running it or we're running it. So Paul doesn't say there's, again, we've kind of finished the race. He says, you're running the race. You better run it well. You better strive for more. Godly discontentment, do you have it? Or are you content to kind of sit where you are and maintain your status quo? Are you content to allow another person to feed you with the word? Are you content to not pray more, not serve your community more, not serve your church more? 
Paul challenges us here to seek a deeper appreciation and application of the gospel in everyday living, to run our race well. What deters you from pursuing Christ alone? What hindrances do you have? Our failures aren't unanticipated by God. Take comfort in that. The psalmist describes it this way. God knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. So your failures are not unanticipated. Don't dwell on them. Allow the gospel to reorient your perspective on your failures and move ahead. And our successes, they're not destinations. They're not final way markers. They're not final destinations. They're way markers given to us to promote greater courage and stability and fruit. They're a a gracious gift of proof that we belong to Christ. In fact, Jesus proclaimed that every tree is known by its fruit. So what is your fruit? Godly discontentment fosters humility and perseverance. Why? Because godly discontentment calls us back to the gospel and calls us to maturity in Christ. Not only this, but godly discontentment encourages spiritual maturity because godly discontentment comes from intimacy with Christ. It only comes from knowing Christ. And it fosters a dependence on the gospel. Ultimately, godly discontentment points to the satisfaction found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are faithful and kind to us, that you, in your gracious word, have given us a picture of the race we are to run. I pray you would give us each a desire for more, and not in a sense that we are not satisfied in Christ, but may we constantly reassess what does satisfy us, what we are currently allowing to distract us and hold us back. May we not allow sin to be a burden to us, but may we allow those burdens to fall at the feet of the cross. And may we not allow the successes of our life to cloud our need to move on. May we live up to what we know by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.